Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 386 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in another instalment of our Location and the Writer series, Linda Hoy takes a writer's journey through the Peak District National Park and explores its many inspiring aspects. Then, Jonathan Edwards shares his love of Newport and the many sights, sounds and events to be found there. First, here's Linda Hoy. Two paths diverged in a yellow wood. Well, not exactly a yellow wood, but on Stanton Moor, where I was on a quest to find the Nine Ladies Stone Circle. I was walking on the broad, well-travelled path when I noticed the narrow, grassy track leading to the right. Would this be a handy shortcut or lead me back towards the car park? I took the path less travelled by and thought about Robert Frost's poem. A group of RLF writers, including myself, had studied this during an introduction to Get Into Reading at Burton Manor in the Wirral. This project introduced poetry and novels to disadvantaged adults, including recovering alcoholics and substance abusers. The road not taken, we were told, had been the perennial favourite of these clients who saw it as a poignant reminder of the time they left a straight and narrow path and fell down the helter-skelter of despair. I'd personally always viewed Frost's road less travelled as the pathway of the free-thinker and the non-conformist and was delighted to find that this path led me to a trick point, a feature of the landscape I always find uplifting, a place to stop, lay down my rucksack and take in my surroundings. I could see for many miles. In the northwest, right across to the darkened mound of Kinder Plateau, and in the south, away to Matlock and the White Peaks limestone valleys. This urge to find the highest point and take in one's surroundings must be primordial. Those Bronze Age settlers who lived here three or four thousand years ago must also have stood at this point and scoured the surrounding landscape to check for animals to hunt or enemies approaching. In her 2017 Wreath Lecture, Hilary Mantel speaks about the importance for writers of getting everything into perspective. She describes the life of Stasia, an unpublished Polish writer who produced exceptionally detailed, unfinished novels and vast plays that were too long to be performed. She was, Mantel tells us, crippled by perfectionism, writing alone in a single room with little food, money or daylight, dying alone at the age of 34. All writers know about this compulsive quest for detail. Each of us has wasted time selecting the most appropriate word or metaphor in passages that are best dispensed with altogether. And Mantel's cautionary tale reminds us how vital it is to keep raising our heads to take the wider view. 
We have to remember who we're writing for and why and consider what they want to read. I re-shoulder my rucksack, turn and take the broad, well-travelled path across the moor and I'm reminded of another poem, this one from my childhood. Old Meg, she was a gypsy and lived upon the moors. Her bed, it was the brown heath turf and her house was out of doors. I learnt Keats Meg Merrilies off by heart so I could carry her around with me, yearning for her solitude and independence. One of my earliest memories is of my mother plodding home through thick snow, carrying the bookcase she'd be making at her woodwork class and setting it down in the front room. Brushing away the flakes of snow, she proudly showed off her dovetail joints. But I was puzzled. Why had she spent so long making a bookcase when we didn't own any books? Mum went upstairs and returned with three small leather-bound volumes, Keats, Shelley and Wordsworth, which she set in place on the top shelf. In time, we would buy other books, she promised. In later years, my father explained how Mum had left her job at the cotton mill in Bradford after her father brought home his fancy woman only a few weeks after the death of her own mother. She left home and joined the ATS, taking with her the only item she owned belonging to her mother, these three books of poetry. They became my first reading, and I treasure them still. I arrive at the stone circle. According to legend, the stones are the petrified bodies of nine women struck down by the Almighty for dancing on the Sabbath. As Hilary Mantel also said in her Ruth lecture, as soon as we die, we enter fiction. Some claim the solstice is celebrated nowadays by New Age witches dancing naked in a circle. But given the prevailing winds and temperature in the Derbyshire Peak District, I doubt the truth of this. The site has attracted pagans, druids, New Age travellers and campers protesting about nearby quarrying for as long as I can remember, although the stones are, as we say locally, nothing to write home about, being lopsided, well-weathered and not the full shilling that we normally find in circles hereabouts. Yet there's something vital about this concept of laying bare and stripping naked that is important to a writer, even one with all her clothes on. So much of our best work involves digging down and delving into, dispensing with what we don't need, what the American writer Thoreau called living deep and cutting a broad swathe and shaving close. And this is what this wandering through the countryside enables us to do. We set out with our brains beset with drudgery. Will the car get through its MOT? Do, do we have enough rice for risotto? Did I do right to hang the washing out or does it look like rain? And when that's stripped away and dealt with, we're free to become aware of our surroundings. The song of the distant skylark, the spring of boots upon the heather, we find ourselves observing and recording. 
and through all this there runs a thread of something that we hope will emerge as a piece of prose or poetry or the beginning of a story. And if we wander long and far enough, it gives silence chance to arise. This silence is not just an absence of noise. That's what we hear when the fridge stops working or when there's an awkward moment in our conversation. This creative silence is the nourishment our soul needs before it starts to speak. As Yeats wrote in Long-Legged Fly, Like a long-legged fly upon the stream, her mind moves upon silence. This is a silence which can withstand sound, that can lie beside a gurgling stream, or inside a busy nest of ants, or inside our own mind. In A Book of Silence, the novelist Sarah Maitland suggests that this kind of silence is not a lack of language, but other than, different from language. Not an absence of sound, but the presence of something which is not sound. She goes on to describe it as being like a black hole in which the human ego might be drawn inside and which time itself is slowed. And it seems to me that the role of the writer is to search for this depth of silence in which we can settle down and sink inside. Like Maitland's black hole, we become drawn inside an entirely different dimension, like dreaming we can fly or like swimming underwater. And this is the medium through which ideas begin to flow. Times when words twist and tumble onto the page in such profusion that we find ourselves struggling to keep up. They can arrive without even entering into conscious thought, with all the force of a raging stream or torrent. And there are times when this torrent simply stops. Just like that. The sluice gates close. On my journey back from the Nine Ladies, I passed through the verdant limestone dales of Latkill and Bradford, where that is exactly what the river does, floods and then stops. I remember one summer when the pathway was submerged and I had to paddle through it up to my calves and hike for the rest of the morning in squelching boots. And another time in summer when the gurgling river completely disappeared so my idyllic stroll with its weirs, waterfalls and wagtails became a dusty plod along a country lane. Whilst I was trudging through my own dry spell as a writer, I remembered the words of my dear friend Mary Myers. She once spoke in our local Quaker meeting about the importance of waiting until the time is right, using the example of sluice gates. She'd just returned from a canal trip and described the impossibility of opening the lock until the water had arisen. When the time is right, when the water is ready, I remember her explaining, it's so easy that even a child can do it. I found, as I'm sure so many other writers have, that forcing myself to put pen to paper, going through the physical act, did no good at all. I was, of course, quite terrified 
that I would never write again. But my muse, it seemed, had either been struck down and turned to stone or taken the path less travelled and helter-skelter down the long slide of despair or had died and entered fiction. No amount of staring at an empty page would bring her back. It was only when I turned and walked away, drove away, in fact, up the western coast of Scotland and wandered round its many hills and lochs that the muse appeared suddenly one morning through the Scottish mist. Inspiration, like Emily Dickinson's hope, is a thing with feathers. It can fly away at any time. We can never set a circle round it or tether it with thread. But if we wander far enough, either on the narrow trail or the wide, well-travelled path, if we strip away the preoccupations of the day to find the silence deep within, we might one day hear a sound behind us and catch a glimpse of the muse once again holding out her hand. That was Linda Hoy. Next, here's Jonathan Edwards. A few years ago, I arrived at a literary festival in a foreign city and was picked up from the station by one of the organisers. When he asked me where I was from and I mentioned Newport, his response was interesting. Ah yes, he said, I heard on the radio the other day that the place has made great strides in the last few years. It used to be the UK capital of violent crime. Now it's the UK capital of suicide. His response was an interesting one because growing up in the valleys 10 miles or so outside the city, Newport was always a place of glamour and energy for me. It was bright lights, big shops, things happening. As I grew up, I loved its tawdry glamour, its personality, the way that it was small and friendly enough to be a town, exciting and colourful enough to be a city. I tried to pin that down in my poem View of Valley's High Street Through a Cafe Window from my first collection. They're not thinking that, these lovers who hold hands at just the height of shopping bags, or this girl who smokes a fag and rides a bike past, like a really crap steam train. As I got older, among the things about Newport which fascinated me was its sense of working class history. One of my most vivid memories from school is of going to visit the Chartist mural in John Frost Square, which commemorated the Chartist martyrs shot by soldiers in front of the city's Westgate Hotel. The Chartists were campaigning for many of the democratic rights we take for granted nowadays. Votes by secret ballot, votes without property ownership, and what they did makes a strong case for Newport being the birthplace of democracy in the UK. The mural was demolished a few years ago in order to make way for a sparkling new shopping development, but the experience of standing in front of that artwork, seeing the martyr's blood vividly portrayed in the blocky scarlet tiles of the mural, was unforgettable and something I later wrote about in a poem about the peace. Marching for centuries towards a Westgate they will never reach, and bottom right, these three, forever dying, are bleeding from their mouths, their hearts, red tiles. If the history of class descent is one thing, the history of pop culture is another, and, as I got older, it was wonderful to know that Newport had such a strong place on the popular music map of Britain. For a time in the late 90s, it was being talked about as the New Seattle, as a host of bands emerged from or passed through the city. One of the legends of the area in this regard, a story which sums up so much of the romance of the city and what it represented to me when I was younger, 
concerns the visit of Kurt Cobain of Nirvana to Newport in 1991. The legend goes that Cobain proposed to Courtney Love in the legendary nightclub TJ's, where she was playing with her band. The story inspired a poem about the rock star's time in the city. Some young dude staggering from the station, all jeans and grimace, all tufty coat and peep-toe sneakers. That's nothing new around these parts. He rubs his eyes, approaches this first stranger. Excuse me, do you know the way to a place called TJ's? If I love Newport for its past, I love it, too, for its present. The way it spreads out into suburbs and the communities of the eastern valleys. I've lived in this area all my life, and I love its accent, its personality, the warmth and affection of people from this area for each other. Industry generated a certain type of housing here, the rows and rows of terraces, which in turn generates a certain way of life and a way of relating to other people. Telling stories while hanging out the washing, hearing through the wall what next door are having for tea, it all creates a certain way of relating to the people around you. It's something I celebrate in my poem Colliery Row, a hymn to terraced living. The terraced houses, semi-detached lives, what is a street for? Wind picks up tonight, and a bus driver sways towards his home. The stars come out above Colliery Row, as far as stars from anywhere on earth. Look up at them now, imagine living here. One of the reasons it's great to write about Newport is because there's comparatively little competition among poets to claim it. The city is rich for writers. Any day you can look down a side street in Pill or Mandy, on top of Stowe Hill, or in the underpass on the walk from the Frog and Bucket to TJ's, and see a poem strolling there, or the start of one, scrawled across a wall. But few writers want the place, and you always feel like you're tackling material which deserves to be shouted and sung about, and which has no one else doing that for it. One inspiration in this regard is W.H. Davis, who was born in a pub in Pill, and to whom a surreal statue stands outside the local ice cream parlour. Davis is a fittingly eccentric laureate of my city. He travelled round America as a hobo, lost a leg in a train accident, lived penniless in lodging houses in London, and went from hawking his verses door to door to being an overnight literary celebrity. Among things I love about him is that, despite all people's preconceptions of Newport as a place, Davis is capable of the most beautiful nature poetry. I connect him in my mind with the wetlands, the beautiful natural space on the outskirts of the city, rich with tweetering, twittering birds and all sorts of life. It's a different world you can step into and meander round for an hour, a lifetime. Here is the opening of his great poem, Kingfisher. It was the rainbow gave thee birth and left thee all her lovely hues, and, as her mother's name was Tears, so runs it in my blood to choose for haunts the lonely pools, and keep in company with trees that weep. If Newport's range of literary voices is slim in comparison to other parts of the country, causing us to reflect perhaps on issues such as funding for literature and the nature of the UK publishing industry, this doesn't mean that the city doesn't have a rich cultural life, or, indeed, a voice of its own. This is something I seek to celebrate in my poem Newport Talking, which is written from the point of view of Newport itself. The poem is a day in the life of the city, starting early in the morning, observing the commute and the school run, the working day, having its lunch on the hills outside the city, spending an afternoon around the shops. 
Of course, this is Newport, and the city ends the day with a damn good night out among these brill-creamed madmen, these blow-dry princesses, in all their giggling height of fashion. That isn't quite the end, though, because the city continues its day into the early hours, discovering someone to spend the last of its time with, concluding on a note of tenderness for the dispossessed, which to me sums up so much of what this city is about. Here, outside Debenhams, flat on his back, this bloke with his big arms wrapped tight around the air. I've seen him crossing, recrossing my bridges, staring too long down from there, to where the bubbling reflection of the stars is. Now I hover close to check his breath. He shuffles in his sleep, here in this doorway, here in the place exactly where my heart is. Having written this monologue from the point of view of Newport, having let the voice of the city into my head, I quickly found that the place wouldn't shut up. As I work on my third collection of poems, I find that it isn't just the city speaking, but every corner and place in it. I am currently writing poems in the voices of Newport's phone boxes, its parks, its factories and hospitals. They all have so much to say, so much to shout and sing, and when they get going, I'm less a poet than I am a stenographer. A while ago, I read a report in the local newspaper about suicide attempts from Newport Bridge and the work of the river rescue team in saving people. I was struck by this as the bridge is one I walk across frequently and have done all my life. So to see it as the centre of such personal drama in people's lives was something of a shock. Pretty quickly, the bridge started speaking as a poem and pretty quickly there was someone there walking across it and there were the bridge's feelings of tender care and of powerlessness in the face of what might happen next. Here, tonight, a young man walks alone towards my middle, dumbbelling a scotch bottle under arm. He reaches midway, looks down at the river, then clambers over, stands there on the ledge and holds on tight. I feel his warm touch there. Oh souls, believe me, I'd never let go if I could choose. I know by heart exactly what it is to just have too much weight to bear. It might be, in a way, that this poem represents something of a response to the festival organisers I began this piece with, to their comment about Newport being the suicide capital of the UK. It might be this poem, which has the city's beating heart at its own heart, was born in another city, in another country. It might be that the poem is part, as this article has been, of an ongoing project to challenge such preconceptions about my home, to redefine exactly what Newport is the capital of. It's a capital of history, of democracy, of excitement, revolutionary spirit, eccentric poets and birdsong. But more than anything, it's a place where people care about each other, love each other, will not ever let each other go. That was Jonathan Edwards. You can find out more about Linda Hoy and Jonathan Edwards on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 386, which was recorded and produced by Yasser Amir. Coming up in episode 387, Julianne Pacheco speaks with Carolyn Sanderson about childhood in Colombia, the influence of horror and suspense in her work, and teaching versus writing. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud 
the podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.